0: Well it is so good to see you and I think I say this every week now that I do not take this for granted. The, the, the privilege we have to gather together physically and virtually is a great honor that we ought not take uh, for granted. And, and our commitment is that we will gather in one way, shape, or form every Lord's Day and praise God together uh, in all seasons, in good seasons and in bad. We will not neglect the assembly. Are you in for that? Yeah. No. Well, I, I'm probably not the first uh, parent that has had trouble helping kids with homework uh, these days. Uh, it, it's not that I don't want to help or that I lack patience with kids. It's that they don't want me to help and lack patience with me. Uh, the amount of information that I have accumulated and subsequently forgotten is staggering. Now, my wife Angie is a, was a math and science teacher, so the kids tend to track her way for those subjects. And I'm more soft skills which is a kind way of saying I can't help much uh, with, with homework. Um, but recently, my daughter Gracie came home, true story, and she was, said she was struggling with her homework, and I said, what subject? And she said, English. And I said, honey, English English is like a second language to me. I, I, am, I am fluent in English. I can help with this. And she said, well, it's really more of a writing assignment. I said, writing? Honey, your old man is a writer. But I write sermons, I write letters, I write curriculum, uh, we got this. And she said, well, okay, we, we have to circle um, the predicate nominatives. The what now? <laughs> can, I, can I see your textbook here for a minute? And why don't you watch TV for a little while and come back to me in a few minutes? And, uh, and we got that. So <laughs> Angie is math and science. I am writing and soft skills. And every now and again, they cross over And I was reminded recently of a concept that is found in math and science and in writing and grammar. It's taught in philosophy. It is one of the great foundations of logic. And since it's been a while since maybe some of you have had a philosophy 101 course or have cracked open a geometry uh, textbook, uh, let me remind you of this concept. It is the if-then statement if-then statement. This is, this is the foundation of uh, much of math and science. Uh, it is found in logic and reasoning. This lies behind computer programming, and there are grammar rules that govern its use in writing the if-then statement. It really is, is hypothesis conclusion. That's the way if-then statement works. When you find this in mathematics, it's expressed this way. If P... Then Q. Does this ring a bell with anybody? If P, then Q. Why P and Q got chosen for this task is something I knew and have forgotten, and uh, I just assume that someone took two of the less popular letters of the alphabet and stuck them in here. Um, let's look at some examples of an if-then statement. Here's here's how an if-then statement will work. If you get good grades, then you will get into a good college. That's an if-then statement, hypothesis, conclusion. A a if-then statement can be true or false. Uh, This particular statement, if you get good grades, you will get into a good college. In most circumstances, that would be a true if-then statement. If the statement I gave you was, if you get good grades, you cannot get into a good college, that would under most circumstances be a a false if-then statement. Let's look at another one if the United States has 5% of the world's population then the rest of the world has 95% of the world's population, that's just logical, here's another one, if the fire alarm rings then we must leave, that's been predetermined and let's look at one more, if I'm in a hurry then I will hit every stoplight, Uh, it's true but we we don't know why These are if then statements. So, we're in a series going through the New Testament book of Philippians, which is actually a letter written by a man named Paul to the people, to the Christians at the uh, city called Philippi. And people who live in a city called Philippi are called Philippians. This is the Philippian letter. And Paul writes this to the followers of Jesus, to Christians at Philippi. He calls them saints which is Paul's word for every follower of Jesus. You are all saints in Paul's vernacular. And he's writing this letter from prison. And in the second chapter, uh, what we're gonna look at today is one of the most powerful if-then statements in in all the Bible. In the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, he writes this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit if any tenderness and compassion dot 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 and a hold off we'll hold off on the then as we consider this pivotal pivotal if this big if statement paul is building a case based on where a person is relationally with jesus christ and what the then what the consequence what the result would be for someone connected to Jesus and he's going to cast it very broadly if you draw anything from Christ if you get anything out of his companionship if there's anything at all between you and Jesus if your heart beats at all with the heart of Jesus that's where he's going and I believe Paul is intentionally including everybody in this Uh, Even if you don't consider yourself a committed follower of Jesus, you probably don't consider yourself a committed hater of Jesus, right? You wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be tuning in if that were true. And even if you feel far from God right now, I bet there have been times where you have tasted what Paul is talking about here, where you have read something that Jesus said or a story that he told or you met somebody who follows Jesus who, who came to you in Jesus' name and for Jesus' purposes and you felt this encouragement that Paul is talking about or maybe there was a time of crisis or desperation and you called out to God and you felt the presence of God in your midst even if you don't consider yourself an overtly religious person Paul writes in a broad way here, intentionally, if there's anything between you and God, if there's anything alive in you spiritually, if there is any ember still burning within the fireplace of your soul, then, then, and he gets to the big then, what then? Then, make my joy complete by being like-minded. And we'll talk in a moment about what Paul meant by like-minded, But here let's just say that Paul is saying what many of the biblical writers say that if you're connected to Jesus in any way then there ought to be a difference in how you live. There ought to be something that flows out of that. If there isn't a difference then you have a false if-then statement. Your if-then statement is incongruent. And James speaks to this as well. This is what uh, James says. This from the message version. Dear friends do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful that's just great demons do that but what good does it do them? Use your heads. This is the message translation. Uh, Beautiful rendering of that writing of of James. Um, Again, the biblical writers often speak to this idea of life congruence. If you're really connected to God, then something ought to happen. If is naturally followed by a then. The then flows from the if. And many places in the Bible... Uh, express this concern about people who say something or or say they believe something but then the then is incongruent with their belief. But in this section Paul has a very specific concern in mind. A specific breakdown between belief and behavior, between knowing and doing, between saying and living, and it has to do with unity. This is what that full verse says, make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. There are so many things Paul could have said here. If you're connected to God in any way, if Jesus encouraged you anyhow, then, I mean, he could have said then, volunteer in children's ministry. He could have said then, pray more, read your Bibles, uh, serve Uh, Keep yourself pure sexually. There's all kinds of things Paul could have said, but he chooses to speak to unity. His primary concern here is that the Philippians interact with each other in loving unity the way that Jesus wants his people who are connected to him to live. Now, why was this so important to Paul? This was so important to Paul because it was so important to Jesus. When Jesus was about to head to the cross, you know, he prays this prayer for his followers and for those who would come after him. Right? This is Jesus praying for us in his great futuristic prayer. A lot of you know this prayer. It's recorded in John 17 where Jesus prays this. My prayer is not for them alone, not just for his disciples around him now. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the apostles' message that all of them may be Me, Jesus prays for us that those who follow Him would be one. Those who follow Him would be unified so that the world would know that God and Jesus are real. Unity will be a testimony. And Jesus gathered around himself this little community of people. He included people from different political parties, people from different backgrounds who were at odds with each other in the world, but somehow in Jesus Christ, they found a common purpose and mutual love. And people would look at this little band of people, this little community, and they would say the fact that a group like that exists is in itself a miracle. Those people should not be getting along anywhere. The fact that they love each other must be supernatural. There must be a God if a little community like that could exist. And this prayer of Jesus did live out in the early church. You know, the first century, the, the, the biggest rift in that culture was between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. To understand the New Testament, you have to understand how deep that cultural rift was. And yet in the church... They had some conflict. They had some bumps that they resolved. But Jews and Gentiles had this unity inside the church that did not exist outside the church. And people said there must be something about that community. That's got to be supernatural. God must be real. Unity does not mean uniformity, where everyone looks and thinks the same. Unity does not mean unanimity, where there's agreement on every minutia of belief. Unity is not the absence of conflict. Conflict is inevitable, and it exists in every family, in every church, in every group. By unity, the Bible means first and foremost a oneness of heart, a relational unity, being kind to each other, gracious to each other, forgiving one another, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Biblical unity is about working through conflict, avoiding slander and gossip, and being generous in spirit. You get the feeling from reading Philippians, there were some signs here that the Philippian church is starting to crack in their unity. You see some little dribbles of it throughout this great letter. Uh, For example, as Paul's wrapping up this letter in chapter four, we're not there yet, but this little throwaway line here, it'd be easy to miss but Paul says in chapter 4 I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord now those are women's names and uh, these two women here in the church we don't know their story Uh, we can assume they both love the Lord we can assume these two women love their church but sounds like they might be having problems loving each other we don't know what the debate is now, uh, Maybe they were arguing over who had the worst name. We don't know. But Paul says, I plead with them because the, the witness of the church is at stake. When churches begin to fight, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't reveal to the world this, this one God. So when we use that word church, you know, sometimes we're talking about the church little c., a local congregation. Most of the Bible's talking about a local community of believers. Sometimes we use the word church, capital C, to talk about all the followers of Jesus in a region or a city or the nation or the world. And uh, I've been meeting with a group of pastors over these last few months from our region. We meet every other week on Zoom, and we started meeting to compare our COVID-19 response plans. How are you meeting the needs of your community, How are you navigating all the safety factors required for worship? It started there, but it's kind of evolved and now most of our conversations are about the racial tensions in our country. And this group of pastors throughout the Detroit metro area are made up of black and white pastors. And the sense is, you know, we feel like we're the, the shepherds of the one church of Jesus of metro Detroit. And how do we shepherd our people when our nation is so divided on these issues, how how can we show this kind of unity and love inside the family of faith that right now doesn't exist outside the family of faith? And we're so committed to this that this last week we spent two days together. We carved out an overnight time. Twelve pastors went away for two days. Six African American pastors, six uh, white pastors. And we discovered something together that we do not see everything the same. We recognize that we see through the lens of how we grew up. But we know that we all love Jesus and we're all committed to being the larger church on this. And we long for the day when people would look at the church and go, it must be true that God is real because what's going on there could not happen any other way. And the church would lead in unity the way it did in the first century. A couple other things I want to say about this—this, this, uh, these two days that I spent that might be interesting and then we'll move on. I'm so glad that I entered that two-day uh, retreat uh, with the idea of being a learner because I don't know about you, but when I enter a conversation on race relations as a white person, I naturally get a little defensive and I'm inclined to do a lot of um, Yes, but. Yes, but, what about looting? Yes, but, my family had nothing to do with that. Yes, but, uh, what about your own racism? And I'm so glad that I did not take that approach um, because what I learned in these two days is that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the African American church that are really hurting right now. They're really hurting, they're finding their place. And and I went in with the, my dominant thought was, uh, mourn with those who mourn. And when one part of the body of Jesus hurts, the whole body hurts. And I'm so glad I entered the conversation that way, and maybe that'll be helpful to those of you when you engage these difficult conversations in the weeks ahead. The other thing I want to mention is, I always wonder why I'm included in so many of these kind of conversations. I've taken part in different panels. I've been on panels on the radio and on uh, the web uh, and in print. Um, and I always wonder why I'm, I'm invited because I'm no expert on this and maybe every panel just wants a pudgy Presbyterian. And even at this meeting, I was, I was just confessing that when we talk about the city, I want to be careful because sometimes I know the city means all of us. And sometimes when you say the city You're talking about the city proper, and I'm an outsider. And I want to be careful that I know my role in these conversations, whether I'm an outsider or an insider. And one of the African American pastors said, Scott, you are an insider because of how your church has interacted with the city over the long haul. I just want to say, I realize the platform that that I've had in these conversations is because of this church, uh, because this church has for decades. Interacted with the city in ways that, that aren't uh, overtly bringing attention to ourselves. They're kind of under the radar, and they're faithful and and long term, and, and uh, anyway, and that I was just filled with a burst of gratefulness for you and for this church, and for the way uh, you have had a faithful witness for decades. And I want to I want to say that. I would ask you to applaud for that, except we're about to talk about humility. So Paul says, if you're connected to Jesus, then make my joy complete by being unified, by being one. How do we do that? How do we do that? Paul goes on in this this chapter. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. What drives Unity is personal humility. Which means the ultimate uh, adversary of unity is pride. Pride is at the heart of all disunity. Humility is at the heart of all unity. And pride sneaks in in really subtle ways. I, I joked with someone this week that I almost called this message Humility and how I mastered it like a pro. Like you can't really talk about humility uh, without risking not being humble, and you know there's an old song that says, "Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way." You know that song? Yeah. Paul says the answer is to follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus, and you heard read this great section here. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he's going to quote here, who, being in the very nature God. Now this section here is sometimes called the Christ hymn because Paul seems to be quoting from another source. He is quoting a poem or a song that was used in the early church. And we have good reason to believe this song uh, and that day may have been sung to the tune Ferrejaca. No, that's not true. I made that up. The tune is lost to us. But this was a great hymn of the church. And what I want you to notice is the strong Christology in, this, uh, in these words. Uh, there, there's such deep theology about the nature and person of Jesus right here because there have been books like the, like the Da Vinci Code that have suggested that the idea of Jesus being divine didn't start until centuries after Jesus. The theory in that book was that it was the, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 where they decided that Jesus was actually divine. But we see here that the idea of Jesus being in the very nature God was rooted in the Christian community in the very early years of the Christian faith. This Christ hymn speaks to the nature and personhood of Jesus. It also speaks to his humility. Jesus was selfless he wasn't after position or title. Here was God himself in human form, second member of the Trinity, and we're told that rather than exalting himself, he emptied himself. He walked away from glory. He voluntarily left his throne. And in Christmas time, just a couple months away, we celebrate the God of the universe of all powers who humbled himself and entered our world in the form of a tiny, vulnerable, fragile, bedwetting little baby? Born in an obscure village, entrusted to a poverty stricken teenage couple. Humble. And then the humility of God is shown again at Easter time when Jesus showed his willingness to submit to the cross. In crucifixion, you may know that the goal of Rome in crucifixion wasn't just to execute people, it was to humiliate them to, to shame them as much as possible. And one of, the ways, one of the ways they would do this is they would strip the one being crucified of all of their clothes and they would parade them right down the street for all to see to the place of crucifixion which was usually a place right on a major road where all the passerbys would see and they would nail this person to a cross completely naked, vulnerable, shame in that culture until they died. And Jesus was no exception. I know that every painting of Jesus on the cross has Jesus wearing a loincloth. Friends, that is artistic modesty. Jesus had no loincloth. Jesus would have been laid bare in the most humiliating way that would have been possible before friends, before strangers, before his mother before the world but Jesus went to the cross anyway scorning its shame why why did Jesus go to the cross scorning its shame because of what the shame of the cross would allow which is the clothing of your shame the shame that Jesus endured allows your shame to be covered to be atoned for to be set right that's why we love this Jesus who humbled himself in this way here's how Paul ends this section and we're going to end here too and let me invite the musicians to come uh, take their place this is a great place for us to land today this passage is so great this is still the Christ hymn and I want you to read this, uh, these words with me aloud if you can make these out This is the final closing, this one who was humbled, who voluntarily humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. Then we read this, let's read this together aloud. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The one who humbled himself was exalted by God. The one who made himself low was lifted up. So let's end our service where Paul ended this section by singing of this name that is above every name. Would you please stand? Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this one who humbled himself who considered himself to be nothing even though he was God in human form we thank you that he was obedient to death to death on a cross and how his in scorning shame what that means for our lives and our shame that our shame can be met in him thank you God that you saw fit to exalt him to the highest place and you gave to Jesus the name that is above every name And now we join our voice. We join our prayers. And we exalt that name. We exalt the name of Jesus, high and lifted up. Oh, praise the name of Jesus. And everybody said...